Welcome to Shorewords, the ASPN podcast of coastal literature, the factual and fictional accounts that transport us toward the shore. I'm Leslie Ewing, host of Shorewords, and each episode, I'm talking with authors about their coastal writing and with coastal leaders about the tales and stories that inspired their chosen paths. Today, it's my great pleasure to talk with Julie Burwald about her books and her adventures in the ocean. But first, I'll pause for some information from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline. Like what you're hearing and want to support the network? Sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more. So, Julie, you've written two amazing books. Um, First, you wrote Spineless, The Science of Jellyfish and Art of Growing a Backbone, which we all need these days. And then um, (laughs) (laughs) most recently, you've written Life on the Rocks, Building a Future for Coral Reefs. So you've gone from jellies to corals. What was the path that got you interested in both of these? And, you know, sort of they're so different in my perspectives of, of ecosystems and species. What got you enthusiastic about them? Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. And it's really great to talk to you, Leslie. Um, and thanks for saying the kind words about my book, my books. Um, yeah, so I guess um, it's strange, you know, like I have sort of a love affair with these these lower invertebrates. I just think they're so cool. And, and I guess I use the word lower um, I wish I hadn't said the word lower because I don't think they're lower. I think they're amazing. And um, they're just, yeah, they're older and they've, they've been around for a long time. But in terms of their sophistication, they're, they're here because of their sophistication. Um, but yeah, jellyfish and coral are actually first cousins. They are, along with the sea anemones, all part of the Nidarian phylum. Um, and that phylum, you know, if you think about it, a sea anemone is basically a jellyfish that's flipped upside down and living with its tentacles up and it's the top of its bell glued to the, to the seafloor and coral are basically tiny, tiny sea anemones that have formed a colony and then created a skeleton that holds them all together. Um, so their, their sort of form is, you can kind of recognize that the, the anatomy, the anatomical form is really similar. Um, but what really holds them all together is the, it's in the name of their phylum, Nidae. And Nidae means nettle in Latin, I think, could be Greek. Don't, don't quote me on that. But, um, yeah, and nettle is because they sting. And so they all have these crazy, amazing stinging cells that, um, 
they fire off at little zooplankton and that's what they eat. And those stinging cells, uh, we could get into it, but they are some of the most just fabulous weaponry any animal has ever concocted. So um, that's, that's why they're all together in one phylum. And in terms of me writing about them, they're, they're connected. Um, yeah, even biologically. Okay. Well then, how did you get into um, science writing as a career? Well, so I, um, as an undergraduate, I guess, I was really intimidated by writing. My roommate from college happens to be just an amazing writer. And when I met her, I just, I read some of her essays and I was like, oh my God, I could never write like that. I better, I can never even write. Like I'm too intimidated to even consider writing. And so I became a math major <laughs> to like never have to write anything again. Um, just equations. Yeah, just equations. Exactly. And it's kind of like this, this language that only a few people can understand and it's sort of elegant and beautiful. But um, yeah, it was really because I was afraid of writing. And, and so I, I went through college as a math person. And then my junior year of college, I went on a study abroad program to Israel. And I had grown up in St. Louis, Missouri, which is about as far from any coast as you can get. And so I really didn't know anything about the oceans. And I signed up kind of randomly for this marine ecology course. And we got to the beach in a lot, which is on the Red Sea. And the teachers in the course kind of threw some masks and snorkels at us and said, put your head underwater. And I did. And I was like, what? I live on the same planet with this. And I never knew it existed. And I, it just, it rocked my world in a way that nothing ever had before, really. And then I got out of the water and we went into the classroom and the professor started telling us about all these species of coral and how they work together on the reef. And he used equations to describe it. And I was like, oh, this is what I was born for. So I, um, I decided to become a marine biologist right then and there. <laughs> and it didn't work exactly as planned. I, I, got in, I didn't get into grad school to study coral like I'd hoped. I got in to study satellite imagery of the ocean. Um, but it turns out I just didn't have enough passion for that. And I fell off the academic path. And that's when I got back into writing. I started writing textbooks and then I kind of lucked into writing more mainstream magazine articles. And then um, the jellyfish kind of floated back across my radar. And that was when I was like, okay, if I'm ever going to write a book, which is something I really wanted to do because I'm a huge reader and to write a book felt like a legacy I wanted to live on, leave on this planet. Um, maybe the jellyfish is the story I can tell. And so I started writing about jellyfish. Well, perfect. So jellyfish gave you the backbone to become the writer that you were afraid to become when you decided to become that easy thing called a mathematician. Yeah, yeah that's that's the easy path yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like so many of us don't choose the easiest path to where we're supposed to get. You know, <laughs> I don't know anyone who has really, <laughs> but that that was the circuitous path. <laughs> And so I read Life on the Rocks. A friend had given it to me as a thank you gift. 
And I thought it was wonderful. And I, it just, it was that serendipity that it showed up. And then I had spoken with Kate. Um, Musumeci. Musumeci, yes. Dr. Dr. Kate, thank you. And the next day she said, oh, I was just doing a, a, a book reading thing with you. And I thought, oh, item number two, this is looking good. So I'm so glad we're able to talk. Me too. I was reading through Life on the Rocks and I kept going through and I kept thinking, I'm not, I'm not a biologist. I'm an engineer. So I like the way coral can build itself and that sort of structure and the engineering part of it. But I was going through and thinking, okay, now I'm starting to get what coral really is. But it, it seems like, like you say in your book, it's been maybe a hundred years or so since we realized that coral were actually animals, that they were sort of I guess, calcified plants up until that point. I'm not sure what we thought they were. Yeah. But, and so we're sort of still learning things. But I was going, okay, now I get them. And then the next chapter I go, oh, no, I don't get them again. It just seems like the more I read, the more I was confused. It, it just seems like I'm probably not the only one who's a listener here. So can you give us like a Coral 101 yeah. of what we sort of think we really know and then what's still out there to be discovered? Yeah, it's pretty amazing with coral because you're right. Like we know, like coral, coral were talked about in the ancient Greek myths. Um, like Medusa's blood was supposed to have created the coral reefs in the Red Sea. So we've we've lived around coral forever, and we know them to be these builders, these architects. And so the question is, how do they do that? Um, Coral live in all the tropical oceans, and those are places that, and, and yet, I'll say that like coral reefs support, they have outsized importance in the oceans. They support a quarter of all marine species. And that's, it's hard to say an exact number, but somewhere around 800,000 species depend on coral reefs. And between a half a billion and a billion people depend on coral reefs for their primary source of protein. Because coral reefs are just this incredibly rich um, ecosystem. But the weird thing is that coral reefs live in the tropics, which oceanographically are really nutrient poor places. So they're kind of like the deserts of the ocean. There's not much, there's not much uh, plankton there. There's not a lot of plankton life, which is the bottom of the food chain in the ocean. And so what, how do the coral do that? Um, what they've done is they've teamed up with this algae um, in a really intimate way. And I call it in the book, I call it the badass partnership because it just is so badass. Like there's no other way around it. <clears throat> Excuse me. The, the algae live in the tissues of the coral in their stomach tissues, their gastric tissues, like uh, as if they've been tattooed in there. So like inside the tissue and the algae take um, sunlight and carbon dioxide and they mix it together with water and they produce sugar and oxygen and that's just what plants on land do but what those algae do is they feed 90 percent of that sugar directly to the coral so by having this partnership the coral has this incredibly rich source of fuel that wouldn't be available to it otherwise and that powerful source of fuel they use to build limestone to actually create stone. 
and that stone becomes their skeleton and those skeletons all coupled together become the great reefs of our planet, which are so big you can see them from space. And all of that architecture supports all those other marine creatures that live on them. So yeah, so coral are just this, they're incredibly important. And, and this teamwork, this, this coupling up, this deal they made with the algae, you can live inside of us as long as you give us a ton of sugar. That deal is responsible for just so much life on our planet. Um, and, and so it's, it is interesting and in kind of confusing because they are, they're not photosynthetic, but yet the sun is their primary and direct source of energy through the algae that live inside of them. And, and it's, it's just an incredible symbiosis, really powerful. But of course we know that, um, even though it's sort of a heroic symbiosis, it has this tragic flaw, which is that when the water warms up by a few t degrees for, for a week or two, um, this badass partnership falls apart. And we don't know exactly why. Um, even with 100 years of study, and we knew coral bleached back uh, in 1919 was the first time anyone wrote about it in the scientific literature, and and they knew they would see like if the coral would get stressed out they would turn white they would turn white and they're not really white they're clear their tissue is clear but what you're seeing is the white limestone skeleton underneath their tissue, um, and so we they we knew it happened but it was kind of like a niche thing like it would happen occasionally and then um, the water would cool down or the water would you know if it, if it was low salinity that was making them bleach the water would get salty again and. And then the coral would sort of get their symbionts back. The algae would recolonize and the coral would just go on. But starting in the 1980s, um, scientists off of Panama observed this mass bleaching where like huge swaths of the reef turned white. And then it started happening in the Caribbean and then in the Indian Ocean and across the Pacific. And now we're sort of in a chronic state of bleaching. And we don't know if it's that um, the coral, when it gets warm, becomes stressed. And, and so we don't know if um, it's like the coral gets stressed and its immune system kind of ramps up and is like, ooh, I found this thing that is not coral living in my tissues. I'm going to kick it out. Or if it's the algae saying like, I'm not really getting everything I need from my host any longer. I can feel the stress. It's not dealing with the situation it's in. I'm going to reveal myself to the coral's immune system and get myself kicked out because I don't want to be in this stressed out. <laughs> so we don't know which of those two things are happening, but um, it does happen. And, and so, um, yeah, the coral are are dying as a result because when the algae leave they take they take all that fuel all that sugar with them and the coral basically starts to starve yeah but but you've also talked in the book about a lot of the um, tricks that coral have which make them so much of that badass actors sort of thing and 
you know, they've, I, I wrote these things down because they were such cool words. Reticulated evolution. I mean, my goodness, that's cool. And then it's sort of like also, it, you're talking about, well, they kick the roommates out, they kick the algae out, but they can also, I guess, perhaps preferentially find new roommates that are a little bit more accommodating for them, which is pretty cool. And then there's other stuff. And so we're while we're hearing a lot about bleaching, we're not hearing as much about these great um, natural evolutionary things that coral have to respond. So how are those going? Gosh, I love that you brought this up. Um, so what, yeah, one of the cool things that's happening is, so for like, say the last million years or so, maybe million and million and a half years, the, um, the coral have teamed up as far as we know, with this kind of algae whose name is cladocopium. And those algae, yeah, they give the coral 90% of the sugar they make. They are super, yeah, supportive to the coral. <laughs> but what we're discovering is that after coral bleach, sometimes they will team up with a different algae, which is called duristinium. And this was sort of first noticed in the 90s. And the duristinium can actually hang on to the, they will stay with the coral if, when the water gets like a degree and a half warmer. So they don't bleach as easily in response to water heating up, but they are a little more selfish. They only give the coral about 65% of the sugar that they make. So it's a trade that the coral seem to be making around the world, we're, we're definitely noticing an increase in coral affiliating themselves with this, this more selfish, but more thermotolerant algae. And it may be the kind of situation where like the algae, yeah, they'd prefer to have a higher paying tenant, you know, a tenant that could, <coughs> gosh, I'm sorry, could pay higher rent. But, you know, because the air conditioning's out right now, they'll take a tenant that can you know, still pay something, maybe not 90% of their photosynthetic output, but 65%. And, and that'll, they might grow more slowly, they might not be able to make as many repairs on the architecture, but at least they'll survive the coming crisis. And we're starting to see that switch um, in many places around the world. So that's an interesting thing that's happening. Um, and it's a real unfolding story. Like I've been asked, well, could a reef working um, with an algae that doesn't give it as much coral, I mean, as much sugar, what kind of other communities could it support? Could it support all the fish and all of the, you know, clams and mussels and shrimp and all the other things that live on the reef? And I don't think we have an answer to that question yet, because this is a shift. This is like an ongoing story. Um, and so that's one thing that's happening. And then another thing that we don't really understand very well is that coral are really good at hybridizing with each other. They all have the same number of chromosomes. So theoretically they could, um, they can easily hybridize with each other and form, and that allows their genetics to just get really mixed up in ways that we don't know what could happen. Um, and so, there's actually one of the greatest taxonomists, um, which ta a taxonomist is a guy who names species or a person who names species. He actually doesn't really believe in the idea of species for coral 
because they hybridize so frequently that um, he thinks species is sort of almost a useless term for, for a lot of the coral that are out there. Um, and he'll, he'll be on like one side of Australia and see corals that look very clearly like species. And then he'll go to the other side and he'll see coral that merge several of the characters of the two that he thought were separate species. And, and so he's like, well, what is it? Like, what is going on here? And in it, it is really confusing, but in that a really rich ability to create genetic diversity, the coral may come up with their own solutions to this climate crisis. And so that's another you know, possibility in unfolding story. To me, that's really incredible because as you say, corals are one of the early, early um, life forms. And for them to still have that robustness to continue with genetic diversity is very encouraging. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you think about animals that are becoming endangered, you think of, you know, this genetic bottleneck, like with the white rhinos or the panthers, you know, that and that becomes so problematic. But, um, but yeah, the corals seem to have still just a ton of genetic diversity in their toolbox. And you're right. It's a really positive thing. Um, we'll see. We'll see what happens. So drilling a little bit more into this renter, landlord, landlady sort of situation, is there the opportunity for, um, I live in Berkeley. So what we're seeing is there's a real scarcity of housing. So people are doubling up and tripling up in places that used to be single single occupancy type of, of rooms and, and apartments. So is there an opportunity for the coral to take in a couple of algae rather than just one? So instead of getting 65% from one, they're getting 65% from two. And so they're getting even more. Can they do that? Yeah, there are. Um, people have found that there are coral that have more than one kind of algae, that coral that hosts more than one kind of algae. That does happen. There is a little bit of indication that having more than one kind of algae causes more stress to the coral and that they seem to be, I don't know if happier is the right word, but their stress hormones go down when they are only hosting one kind of algae. But, you know, in the future, who knows what might happen. Um, but you make a great, it's a great question. Um, and we, yes, they do see that and it has been observed, but whether that's kind of a stable condition is, seems to be a little in question. Yeah. Well, more occupants tend to cause more damage and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, but it may be that the coral that are capable of hosting more than one's, one's species of algae, you know, maybe those are the ones that survive in the crisis. And so, you know, that's a question of evolution that we might be, may, may observe in the next coming decades. Um, and I guess we just, yeah, it's a great question. Well, one of the things that struck me as I was reading your book were the number of different groups out there who are trying to protect corals. And there are just so many coral restoration study groups and protection groups. And there was some guy from um, Fair Blue, I think it was. Oh, Fierce said, Blue. Fierce Blue, thank you. That you don't need to be a tree hugger to care about coral. 
and the I, the general idea that choral can appeal to a broader audience than other things. And it seems to be that with all these groups, that may be the case. What do you? What is it that you think causes people to care so much about choral, and then also start taking action? It's one thing to care, but it's another thing to form a group and do stuff and be. I care about choral and want to protect it. What? What is the motivation there? Well, that story is actually just a really great story. Um, the Force Blue guys and I think they are all men at this point, are ex-Navy SEALs, who, some of whom had never seen a coral reef, even though they were like expert divers, because they had already always dove in uh, the dark, basically, or in super murky water where they wouldn't be detected. And they discovered that um, and as we know, a lot of people who come back from serving in the military can have real psychological problems and PTSD is quite common and it leads to some real depression. And what they've discovered is that by forming these these task force that are trained in coral restoration, um, some of these people who have suffered significantly come back to life. And one of them, you know, a lot of them have never seen just the beauty of a coral reef, the structural diversity of a coral reef, because they were never, they never dove during the daytime in these beautiful parts of the water. And I think, you know, I rem there's one story about a guy who never even saw a fish until he went diving on a coral reef, even though he was an expert diver. And so I think there's, I mean, the reefs are really powerful. and so physically impressive. I think it, 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 there's a sense of awe and wonder that such small, seemingly, you know, like gooey creatures basically could, could create this kind of majesty in our seas. And, and I, I just think it's, it's hard to not, it's like the way we're impressed by great architecture it's hard to not feel that way when you see a coral reef also. And then to know, I, I mean, there's this physical piece of it, which is that coral reefs are the best protection we have against storms coming towards land. They, they can diffuse 97% of the energy of a wave energy of a storm. So there is a real protection that coral reefs give us that's, that's factual. So I, I don't know. I think maybe all of those things combined create the sense of awe in us that is really hard to escape. It, I mean, they are amazing. And I am, I haven't been diving for a number of years and I almost don't want to start again because I'm scared of what I'm going to see. But I, I do feel like it is, there's so many great like Nat Geo photographs and, and it has become, I think we've gotten very used to as well seeing these gorgeous reefs or seeing these powerful pictures of bleached reefs. So we've gotten very spoiled in the access we have sitting in our homes, the access we have to looking at the underworld, underwater world <laughs> and, and what's there. I agree with you. I feel like, you know how I mentioned the first time I stuck my head underwater, I was like, what? We live on the same planet as this. I don't think I would have that same surprise today um, because like you're saying, we do have so much more access to, to seeing them 
on our screens. <laughs> but there's still something, um, you know, I, when I was diving, I dove on several restorations, as you kind of mentioned. And when I dove on a successful restoration, one that really felt healthy, there's still the kind of majesty that you feel like when you walk in the redwoods of, oh my gosh, these these beings have been, or these organisms have been on our planet for so long. They've lived through so much. And there's sort of this sense of, yeah, just incredible, I mean, yeah, being in the, in the presence of something ancient and, and really important. Um, and it, when you are there physically, um, that is different from watching a screen. Although those screens do a great job and they're really important for us to, for more people, you know, not, it's not accessible to everyone to go to a coral reef. So I'm so glad that these documentaries exist now, but um, it's, an, it's, it's just an incredible feeling to be in the presence of an ancient coral. And there are some incredible VR experiences now you can do, which is sort of one step beyond looking at a magazine, but still there's that being there. But if everyone goes there, that's going to then just stress everything out again and cause problems. So there's that balance we have to find for sure. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, I it's it's a it's a tricky thing, and I I wrote a story on the effect of um, tourism on like the Great Barrier Reef uh, once, and it turns out that it can be done in a way that's quite that doesn't destroy the reef. Um, what they've done in Australia is they've created these these guides who are well certified. And really, in order to get out on the reef, you need to go with a guide. And and that system seems to be working pretty well and not destroying the reef. Um, so I think that there are there's ways to get around that and, so that people can experience it. Because I, I also, I'm, it's conflicting, right? Like, unless, you ex unless people experience it, are they going to want to protect it? And so I think there is something to actually experiencing these things that make us really want to take care of our planet more. One of the repeating people with whom you interact throughout the book is Richard Vivers of Chasing Coral. And he had this mission to find a group to which he would make a donation of $10,000. He'd been given this job, this effort by someone who wanted to make a difference with coral. And he sort of pops up here and there, and I'm thinking, spending a lot of money to give away $10,000, <laughs> first of all, but, but you know, wow, I was like, oh, yeah. I, I like that next job. But so did he ever find a group that he wanted to um, support? Not, no, not really. Um, that was, well, okay. He did end up working on a, a project, and I'm not sure if it was that $10,000 or not, in, um, in Bali. Uh, but this is one of the hard things about coral, is that they've been ignored, and we've really ignored our oceans to a large extent um, for a very long time. And there's some numbers in the jellyfish book, and, I, and so they may be a little out of date, but like, the amount of money we spend on our oceans is somewhere around 150 times less than what we spend on space. In the, and that's just in the United States. So we really 
we have not developed a very good infrastructure for philanthropy into the oceans. And so that that's where that problem was coming up. This this group really wanted to donate to coral reefs, but because the coral reef people are still just kind of getting going and figuring out how to do it well so that it lasts, even in the two years or really one year since the book has, since I finished writing it, I think things have gotten a little bit better. And there there would be a place he could donate now pretty easily in Indonesia. Um, but it is, it's, it's just like the beginning of, of something that I'm, that is going to grow. And there are examples of successful restorations, but it's sort of like early days. And this is one of the hardest questions I get asked about this book is like, what can I do? And, and the answer is still, it's a little hard to answer still at this point. There are places in in different spots around the world where you can go and be part of some coral farming and coral restoration efforts. But they're they're still kind of new and and not fully fledged. Um, the best restoration we saw was funded by the Mars Candy Bar Company. And they don't need ten thousand dollars. <laughs> so that's so like yeah, so like that was not a place to donate that money. Except all of my Halloween candy came from Mars this year after reading your yeah. book. I did go out and do that. Um, so it's, it's, an, you know, it's, it's still tricky. Um, there is something called the Coral Restoration Consortium, which is sort of the place that is rounding up all of these um, places that are trying to do coral restoration. And, and it's getting better. It's getting better. But I, I do want to put out a little warning, which is that there are also people doing coral restorations that are not restoring the coral. And in fact, in some cases, damaging them. And I was just at a meeting um, in Florida where someone from Indonesia showed a quote unquote coral restoration, but it was really, the restoration was put on top of a completely healthy reef, which only destroys the coral underneath. Yeah. So I, it's, it's, it's a tricky, this is a really tricky thing um, right now. There are some people doing it well, but, but, please be careful and, and vet your donations if you are going to donate. Um, the Like I said, the Coral Restoration Consortium is a really good place to look. One of the other things that I think is interesting, or I was thinking of as you were talking, is Sylvia Earle's a good friend of mine. And she oh, was, yeah. that's wonderful. <laughs> she was looking at Google Earth one time, and she said, well, this is fine, but we don't see the oceans. And they went, oh, you're right. Well, we don't. And they changed it. They started to open that up for more ocean identification of locations and such. And I think that's also another great tool that is maybe under-recognized at this point, but trying to have more of a reef uh, focus in there would be really great so that people can, as they're greening around and looking at places they can go on their holidays for vacation, they could also see where there are reefs nearby that they might want to go look at. Yeah, and and Richard Beavers actually started doing some of that work. Um, he did a underwater, uh, I guess, like street view, but it's reef view. <laughs> um, Perfect. And so I, yeah, so there's some of those, like I think around New Caledonia, and um, some on the Great Barrier Reef, um, where you can dive underneath in Google Earth and and swim along a reef. Uh, I think, 
there's so much, you know, there's still, even though the reefs have, have degraded and they only take up 1% of our ocean, it's still a lot of reef out there. So there's a long way to go before all of the reefs. In fact, we don't even have all the coral reefs mapped, which is kind of blows my mind. But, um, but yeah, we have a lot, there's a lot more to, to do with that. Um, there's some really cool groups doing satellite mapping of, of reefs. There's a company called Planet, which has these little shoebox size satellites up there trying to map all of the reefs. And um, so we're getting better, but we still have a lot to do. And then um, there's this new version of the X Prize for reef work that you're talking about. What's going on with that? So uh, we'll have to see. The, the book kind of talked about how the X Prize was like, um, the X Prize, just to kind of back up, is this big award. Um, the most famous one was for SpaceX, the first people who could launch a rocket and then land it back on Earth, a reusable rocket. And as we know, Elon Musk won that one. Um, but so when I started the book, there was the idea of doing another X Prize for coral reefs to restore coral reefs and it was going to be like 10 million dollars and I was like oh this is going to be great I'll have a storyline for my book because I'll just follow around the main contenders for the coral reef x prize and then at the end of the book there'll be a winner and I'll have my exciting conclusion to the book and that's nice I don't have to come up with a plot line but <laughs> it turns out um things never go as planned and the X Prize actually fell apart. That 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 iteration of it, um, the people who were funding it, kind of said, "No, we'd rather use the money locally to protect our reefs locally." And so the whole thing fell apart. But there's a new one that's on the books that they're they're working to launch. It's going to be hopefully twenty million dollars. And I think they're just kind of getting their ducks in a row right now. So we'll see what happens with that. Well, let's let's hope something does come out of it. Maybe it can be part of your next book. Yeah. Or like a <laughs> or maybe like a reality TV show. <laughs> oh, yes. Right? The X Prize X Factor whatever that show is, the the great race, the amazing yeah, the amazing X Prize race. <laughs> yeah. X Prize Coral Reef Edition. <laughs> so like Going back to your books for a second though. There are really nice chapter dividers that are mostly black and white um, imagery. Are those yours? Did someone else do those for you? What are they? They're very intriguing. Oh, you, I love that you noticed them. Those are by a wonderful photographer named Alan Powderham, who is from the UK. He, um, he has a book out right now about the... Um, the coral, the coral triangle. I think the title of it is just like the coral triangle, and it's a photography book. And so, if you want more of his photos, that's where you can find them. He's from England. He also was an engineer, um, and he does called. Um, oh my gosh, uh, it's a sp kind of technical diving where you don't release bubbles. So it's a rebreather. Oh, so rebreather. Re yeah, and so. Yeah. And so you have this kind of, um, you use the system that absorbs the carbon dioxide that you exhale and you, you don't make any bubbles. And that allows you to sort of be very quiet underwater and get very close to the animals. And so he took those coral photos. I don't know if he used the rebreather for those, but 
Um, and he was generous enough to let me use them as the section dividers. And um, I'm really grateful to him. He's a he's just a lovely person who cares a lot about coral. And um, and we had we met you know online during COVID and just kind of had these great conversations. And he he offered me those photographs. They're great. I really like yeah, them. They are. They're really beautiful. Mm-hmm. More back to you. What's your next project? You've gone from no backbone to all skeletal structure with with squishy algae inside. What next? <laughs> I've written a book. Um, my first my first try at fiction. Um, it is with my agent right now. So uh, fingers crossed, she likes it. But um, basically, it's the story of a sixteen year old girl who. Um, who protects, who saves us from climate change using um, the cloud brightening idea that's actually in the coral book. So um, we'll see. We'll see. Hopefully I can get it out into the world. Yeah. But you're going to have to explain cloud lightning to folks too. Yeah. So um, one of the, you know, like, like Leslie has said, there's been all these really interesting ideas around how to protect coral reefs. And so some of them are like actually rebuilding the reef. Some of them are natural solutions, like we were talking about, like reticulated evolution and maybe teaming up with a different algae. Some of them are, uh, we didn't really talk about it, but like there's scientists doing huge, massive in vitro fertilizations and growing up baby coral and then replanting them on the reef. But in Australia, um, they decided to sort of, do this no stone unturned approach where they were going to just put anything they could think of on the table and then evaluate it to see if it might help the coral. And one of the ideas that they ended up deciding was worth exploring is this thing called cloud brightening. And what cloud brightening is, is it's based on the idea that marine clouds, the clouds over the ocean, are not as bright as clouds over land because they have fewer nucleators in them. So every little droplet of water in a cloud has some dust particle or pollen particle in the center of it. Well, over the ocean, there are fewer dust and pollen particles um, for little drops of water to form around. So if you add more particles to the cloud, you get more drops of water and the clouds get brighter. And it turns out you only need to brighten them by about a percent or two to get a cooling underneath the clouds. And the reason you get cooling is because when the clouds are brighter, they reflect more solar radiation back out to outer space. So they um, they tested this project out right at the beginning of COVID and it, it, it worked. It turns out it, it was more successful than they expected. And that project's been, they increased the funding by sevenfold and they're testing this idea of like, should we brighten the clouds over the Great Barrier Reef when there are heat waves in order to cool the water by a few degrees and hopefully keep the coral from bleaching? And um, it's a really interesting idea. And as far as I know, Australia is the only place in the world who's testing this idea, but I talked to a polar scientist about it and he said that you could really um, avert climate change by having these cloud like six you know a fleet of several hundred six hundred or a thousand of these cloud brighteners kind of pumping salt up into the clouds around the planet 
and that would cause enough cooling for us to cool the planet. So that's kind of the idea that my fiction book is based on. Um, what if someone really did it? Yeah. And let's hope it's all powered by uh, renewable energy. Solar so we're not, yeah. <laughs> we're not making that <laughs> work. Well, in fact, um, the polar scientist who told me about this, he, um, the model, like the sort of design that they, these polar scientists came up with was a wind powered ship that um, used these weird kind of sails that are called Kletner motors that are wind powered um, that, that aerosolize the seawater and, and send it up to the clouds. So um, it could be wind powered. Uh, it's, it's apparently technically possible. Great. Well, I look forward to seeing your fiction book. And I expect okay. for, from talking with so. you, there's going to be a lot of science in it that's sort of maybe sciencey fiction to real science that goes into it. So really nice. Two quick final questions. First is, do you have any favorite coastal writers, marine writers, or the people whose whose work you always read when it comes out? Um, well, I have I have a lot of writers I love. Um, let's see, marine coastal writers. Um, oh, coastal. Well, if you haven't, have you read Edie Witter's Below the Edge of Darkness? I haven't read anything. That's. <laughs> okay, that's a really so she she's a she's a deep sea submersible person and her writing is really cool um wonderful book so um i was just on a panel with her at the national book festival and i really i recommend that there's a new book out called um how to speak whale by tom mustel that i really found delightful and actually the opening scene He's in a kayak off of Monterey Bay and a humpback whale jumps out of the water, looks up and he sees the barnacles coming down toward him. Whoa. <laughs> and he gets the, the, yeah, the whale lands on his kayak and he's like, so I was hit over the head with a whale and it seemed like I better <laughs> write this book. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's a real, that's a really good one that just came out. And then there's a beautiful book called Soundings. Um, Oh my gosh. And the author, um, I cannot remember her name. Just give me one second and I will look it up for you. But I also loved this book. Um, it's also about whales. Um, Doreen Cunningham is that book. Um, and she journeys with the gray whales from Baja all the way up to Alaska with an infant in tow which is tricky business. Wow. Um, but that's an absolutely beautiful book. Um, and then if you want to get a little fiction on, um, there is a new book out um, called Remarkably Bright Creatures, uh, which is one of the characters in the book is a very curmudgeonly octopus who lives up in um, an aquarium in Puget Sound. So, um, for what it's worth, if you want some fiction with some marine life in it, that's a fun one. Yeah, I just heard about that from someone else. So interesting. So one more. Somebody somebody who influenced you as you were growing up, or was it your new your roommate in college, maybe is your first author who influenced you, but was there somebody who you looked to in the past for inspiration? Oh, yes, I'll answer that. But let me mention one more person, Dana Staff who is um, 
she's a Bay Area person who writes about cephalopods. And she has a new book out um, for middle grades called The Lady the Lady and the Octopus. And it's about the first woman marine biologist who built aquaria um, in Sicily in the early, I think in the mid 1800s, she lived there. And she was an amazing woman. So that's another, Dana Staff is another person to look out for. Um, okay, who influenced me? Um, I have to give, I have to say it was my father. Um, my dad was a, is a physician, but he, when he was drafted into the army, um, he learned there was like this, there was this shed on the base where we lived that where there was a guy there who taught him how to cut rocks and polish rocks. And my dad became a complete lapidary fanatic, or, uh, you know, a rock hound is what they call him. And so as a kid, were driving around the country and digging up rocks. And he would plan these really elaborate loops. We lived in St. Louis, so we were right in the middle. And we went to every single state and we went to people's farms and ranches and backyards and where they, you could pay them to go dig on their land. But I think I saw so much of the country and nature and I was really annoyed with it for a lot of my childhood because <laughs> I felt like why do other people get to go on cool vacations to you know Disneyland and we have to go dig rocks but uh, <laughs> but I think my father gave me just a sense of the wonder of this planet that we live on and how incredibly diverse and rich it is and how when you get out there, um, it gives you a sense of something bigger than you. And I think that I carry that with me and I'm so grateful for that. So I would say that was an enormous influence that um, I don't get asked about very often. So thanks for letting me kind of reflect on it. Yeah. And then one quick, quick question. Do you have a favorite beach? Um, no. Because every time I go to a beach, I'm like, oh my gosh, look what you can discover here. So I, Every beach is your favorite. Every That's beach perfect. is my favorite. Yeah, when I'm there. I, I mean, I always just feel like there's something new at every beach and there's something I never saw before. And and it brings me so much joy. Well, I, I think this conversation has brought me a lot of joy, Julie. And Thank you so much for uh, talking about your books, your experiences, your underwater adventures, your above ground digging adventures. <laughs> and, and everyone else, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Shore Words. I think the time with Julie has been amazing. I hope that you found it both educational and somewhat inspirational. It encourages you to look differently at your favorite coastal area, your favorite coral reef and or even beach. And until next time, enjoy the coast and your views of the shore. Goodbye.